The title of this morning's message is, He Ever Liveth to Make Intercession. This morning we're going to continue to look into the book of Hebrews, and specifically into chapter 7, yes, again, <laughs> where we find the title of this morning's message in verse 25, which says, Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Now, for us to understand this verse and the argument that the author is making about Jesus being a better high priest, we have to have a better understanding of the word translated as to make intercession. Because if Jesus is ever living to make intercession for us, then we need to know, understand, and appreciate what exactly it is he's doing for us. First, let me tell you what the term does not mean. The term to make intercession does not actually mean that Jesus is constantly praying to the Father for us. I know this might sound a little odd <laughs> if this concept is new to you. It does not mean that Jesus is constantly begging and pleading with the Father to do something. It doesn't actually mean that. But before you pass judgment on this idea, I want you to give me an opportunity to convince you of how to better understand this term, to make intercession. Because the way most of the time it is interpreted, it gives us a less than adequate picture of what Jesus ever liveth to do. He doesn't just ever liveth to pray for us. It's a whole lot bigger than that. Now, I am not saying that our Father and our Jesus never discuss us amongst themselves. <laughs> but what I am saying is that Jesus making intercession is not the same thing as Jesus praying for us all the time. Jesus himself talked about this to the disciples in John chapter 16, beginning with verse 16. This is a conversation between Jesus and his disciples the night before his crucifixion. I have it for you in the Passion Translation. Jesus says this, beginning in verse 16. Soon you won't see me any longer, but then, after a little while, you will see me in a new way. Some of the disciples asked each other, What does he mean, soon you won't see me? And a little while after that, and you will see me in a new way? What? <laughs> what does he mean? Because I'm going to the Father. So they kept on repeating, what is the meaning of a little while? We have no clue what he is talking about. Jesus knew what they were thinking, and it was obvious that they were anxious to ask him what he had meant. So he spoke up and said, let me make it quite clear. You will weep and be overcome with grief over what happens to me. The unbelieving world will be happy, while you will be filled with sorrow. But know this, your sadness will turn to joy when you see me again. Just like a woman giving birth experiences intense labor pains in delivering her baby, yet after the child is born, she quickly forgets what she went through because of the overwhelming joy of knowing that a new baby has been born into the world. So you will also pass through a time of intense sorrow when I am taken from you, but you will see me again. And then your hearts will burst with joy, no one being able to take it from you. For here is eternal truth. When the time comes, 
you won't need to ask me for anything. But instead, you will go directly to the Father and ask him for anything you desire, and he will give it you because of your relationship with me. Until now, you have not been bold enough to ask the Father for a single thing in my name. But now you can ask. And you can be sure that you'll receive what you ask for, and your joy will have no limits. I have spoken to you using figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer teach you with veiled speech, but I will teach you about the Father with your eyes unveiled. And I will not need to ask the Father on your behalf, for you'll ask him directly because of your new relationship with me. For the Father tenderly loves you because you love me and believe that I have come from him. Jesus makes it very plain that what he was about to do by going to the cross would enable those who believe in him to have direct conversations with the Father for themselves. And they would be able to receive from the Father the things they asked for because of their new kind of relationship with Jesus. In other words, Jesus would become our access to the Father. Jesus would bring us to the Father and the Father to us in and through himself. And this is what it means to make intercession. It is the bringing together of two things or two people or a people and a thing. <laughs> it's getting them in contact with each other. That's what intercession actually is. We need to know that when the word says that Jesus ever liveth to make intercession, that is supposed to give us great confidence. Not that he is praying to the Father for us, but that he has connected us to the Father forever. That's what's supposed to give us confidence. The idea of going into the Holy of Holies for a Jew was impossible. It would never happen. It couldn't even be a dream. Because if you went into the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament, you would die. You weren't welcome. So the idea of personal conversations with God, where you talk to God and God talks back, <laughs> that was nowhere on their radar. So we all want us to look at the Greek word that is translated to make intercession. According to the Strong's, it is intukano. It's two root words, in, which always means in, and tukano, which means to chance upon. That is, by implication, to confer with. By extension, it means to entreat in favor of or against. It means to deal with and to make intercession. The root word, this second word, intukano, says this when you look it up in the Strong's. It means to make ready or to bring to pass. In other words, what we need, what we ask for. It also carries the idea of effecting, which means to produce or to bring forth the desired results. Properly or in the strictest sense, it refers to effect, which means to influence or to produce change on our behalf. Or specifically, to hit or light upon as a mark to be reached. That is, to attain or secure an object or an end, or to happen as if meeting with or by chance. Now, 
this is a really big definition and kind of vague. <laughs> but the picture this word is supposed to paint for us is that of an arrow hitting a bullseye on a target. I know you can't tell that just by seeing the definition. But it is related to the Greek understanding for the word sin, which in archery means to miss the mark of perfection, which refers to the hitting the bullseye on the target. We know that all of mankind has already missed the mark of perfection. <laughs> no one has hit the target. No one has been able to approach God in his own value and worth, his own righteousness and goodness. We've fallen short of perfection. And those who have fallen short of perfection cannot reach the bullseye on the target, the target being God. So we needed someone who could not only hit the mark of perfection himself, but who could also enable us to hit the mark of perfection as well. And this is what Jesus' intercession does. It brings the arrow, us, to the target, which is the Father. And in that hitting of the target, there is connection and oneness. In fact, in archery, hitting the bullseye was also known as hitting the gold. And gold was a symbol of divinity. So the picture painted for us is one of humanity entering into relationship with divinity. The arrow entering into and hitting the bullseye. That's the picture we're supposed to actually get when we see this word <laughs> to make intercession. Two things meeting and becoming one. And this, of course, is exactly what Jesus does. He brings us into contact with the bullseye, which is the Father. But in order to do that, Jesus had to provide us with what we needed to be accepted by the Father, and he had to provide the Father with what he needed in order for him to accept us. What God needed was for us to become spiritually perfect. And you know what? That law never did it. No matter how hard we tried, it never helped us reach the target. We were always missing. <laughs> so God needed a way for us to be able to hit the target, to come to him. And we needed God to make a way for us to become spiritually perfect because we were completely helpless and hopeless the way we were. We were powerless to make ourselves spiritually perfect. So Jesus became the go-between the bridge, the intercessor, the one who connects God and man through his own spiritual perfection as both God and man. He ever liveth to connect us to the Father permanently. While it may be true that our Father and our Jesus discuss amongst themselves <laughs> what they're doing with us and what we're doing with them, Jesus really has no reason to be begging or pleading with the Father to forgive us, or to heal us, or to even help us. <laughs> because in Christ, all of that has already been accomplished and provided. Now, all we need to do is believe and receive. And we can see this in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 2. And I have it for you in the Passion Translation. May grace and perfect peace cascade over you as you live in the rich knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. 
everything we could ever need for life and complete devotion to God has already been deposited in us by his divine power. Has already been deposited in us by his divine power. Already deposited in us. (laughs) Why would Jesus be asking for it if it's already deposited in us by his divine power? For all this was lavished upon us through the rich experience of knowing him who has called us by name and invited us to come to him through a glorious manifestation of his goodness. As a result of this, he has given you magnificent promises that are beyond all price, so that through the power of these tremendous promises, you can experience partnership with a divine nature by which you have escaped the corrupt desires that are of the world. In Christ, we have already been forgiven of every sin. In Christ, we have already been made spiritually perfect and complete. In Christ, we have been made one with God the Father, one with God the Son, and one with God the Holy Spirit. And it is this oneness with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that Jesus ever liveth to provide. We could not possibly become more blessed or more holy or more righteous than we are right now, spiritually speaking. We can, however, (laughs) as the scripture we just read indicates, grow in our understanding of our Father and our Jesus, and we can learn how to more effectively and more consistently live according to our new nature, (laughs) live according to the wisdom of Christ that's in with us. We grow in our understanding and we grow in the way we live it out. But spiritually speaking, we cannot get any better than being one spirit with the Lord. We are one with him, and he has made us just like himself, pure, holy, and righteous. And it is this truth about what Jesus is ever living to do that the author of Hebrews is using to try to persuade the Hebrew baby believers They can absolutely trust in our so great high priest and his forever intercession, his forever connection to both us and the Father. We can see the same truth of eternal oneness over in John chapter 10, beginning with verse 27. Have it in the AFV version. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, and no one and nothing shall take them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one and nothing has the power to seize them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, of course, I added the words, and nothing. (laughs) Because when you look up the Greek word, it means nothing at all. No human, no person, no thing, no circumstance, nothing can get God to let go of you. We are one with him eternally. And I like this because we have Jesus taking us by one hand and the Father taking us by the other hand, and we are not getting free. (laughs) Even if we throw a temper tantrum. You ever see one of those little kids in the grocery store and they don't want to do what mommy wants and she's dragging that kid across the... Okay, even if that was us, our Father's never going to let go. Jesus is never going to let go. We are one with him. Amen. Amen. So Jesus is saying that he and the Father are eternally connected. 
and that together they actually give the same eternal connection to those who believe on Jesus. And those who receive this connection are eternally stuck. <laughs> eternally stuck to both Jesus and the Father without any ability to become unstuck. It's not like Velcro. <laughs> there is no getting unstuck. <laughs> Nothing and no one will ever cause a new creation in Christ Jesus to cease to be a new creation in Christ Jesus. We will forever be one spirit with the Lord. We as human beings have no ability to connect ourselves to God, no matter how hard we try. We could never reach that target. We could never reach that bullseye. Our good works don't have the ability to earn us eternal life. And our sins and failures don't have the power to overcome eternal life. I love that Jesus rose from the dead after taking all the sin of the world into death. What did he prove? That sin can't overcome eternal life. Eternal life is eternal righteousness. Eternal life is eternal connection to God. Sin cannot overcome what Jesus has done. Praise God. <laughs> Our eternal life is a gift of God's grace, his absolutely free loving kindness through faith in Jesus. And as believers in Jesus, we have no ability to disconnect ourselves from God's eternal life, which is really good news. <laughs> Jesus' eternal life and Jesus' eternal intercession for us enables us to continually partake of our salvation benefits freely by faith. And this is really what the author of the Hebrews is trying to persuade his readers to do, both physically and spiritually. God is not withholding anything from us. For a long time, a lot of people looked at God as the mean one from the old covenant and Jesus is the nice one from the new covenant. And God is so mad at humanity, Jesus has to go in and calm him down <laughs> and persuade him that he loves us <laughs> and wants to be good to us. That, of course, is exactly the opposite of the truth. For God the Father has so loved the world that he sent us his Son. God loves us. He always has. <laughs> he always has wanted to do us good. And he still does. <laughs> the vast majority of the author's readers would have already understood the concept of being born again, being saved. But they were struggling because they wanted to be saved physically. Okay, so they already knew that according to the scripture, there's this big bad thing happening where the temple's going to be destroyed in Jerusalem. They know it's coming. I don't know why they just didn't get up and go somewhere else. <laughs> but they were waiting for the great escape, okay? So they knew this bad thing was going to come, but they're in the midst of horrible persecution. Think about the Jews during the Holocaust. That's probably just a little bit as what these believers had to endure. The government was upon them. Their families were against them, I should say. Everybody was against them. Everybody wanted them dead. Nobody wanted them around. The heathens were trying to kill them too. <laughs> because Christians were bad luck. If you didn't worship their God, you're bad luck. Let's kill you so that our gods will be happy again. <laughs> Nobody wanted the Christians to be there. So these Hebrew Christians are trying to figure out how do we get God to save us physically, 
until then. You see, they weren't sure God would be inclined to do that because they weren't sure God was in favor of them. They weren't sure that they were completely right in God's sight. And that is really the basis of unbelief. Do I believe God is good and always good? Do I believe he loves me with an everlasting love? Do I believe that he has already provided everything I need for life and godliness? Do I know that he is for me and will bend over backwards if I so need him to, to rescue me? Do I believe all of that? Enough to the point where I can act on it. (laughs) You see, this is where they were. They weren't sure the blood of Jesus was really enough. So just to make sure that God is happy and not mad, we'll just get a little lamby and take it to the temple. So we have Jesus and a lamb, thinking that's extra. (laughs) I'm hedging my bet. I've got both. (laughs) Not realizing that taking lambs to the temple, they were declaring that Jesus was not enough. They didn't believe what Jesus had done was enough. When it talks about salvation, it doesn't just mean forgiveness of sins. And we can can see this in Hebrews, again, chapter 7, verse 25. Wherefore he, Jesus, is also able to save them, so though. It doesn't say he's able to forgive them. See, sozo is a big, big, wonderful word. (laughs) Save, heal, deliver, provide, protect, and make whole. It's everything you need for life and godliness. He says, I can sozo you to the uttermost, completely and perfectly. Those who come to God, the Father, by Jesus, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He ever lives to keep them in righteousness, to keep them in right relationship, to connect them to the Father and to the power and to the kingdom and to the glory and to anything else we want. (laughs) It's a big, huge word. When people see this, they mean, oh, you mean Jesus is able to save the worst of the worst. Hello, who is the worst of the worst? Everybody is the worst of the worst. Nobody deserved to be forgiven. Nobody was so bad that God said, oh, no, not you. (laughs) This is talking about what his relationship in us and through us and for us can do in the midst of ordinary life, especially when it's hard, when it's dangerous. Thank you, Jesus. We live in a country where people aren't trying to kill us because we're Christians. But that is still going on around the world today. And those people, like in the underground church, God does all kinds of crazy good things for them. He tells them where the meeting's going to be. (laughs) And they have to go and find it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because you couldn't have it at a regular church like we do, so everyone had to go run around sneaking around, led by the Holy Spirit, to get you at the right place at the right time. This word isn't as small as people want to make it. He is able to save, to sozo them to the uttermost, completely and perfectly. As far as killing us off and starting over, absolutely. That's what he does with all of us. (laughs) Kills us off and starts over so that we're perfect. (laughs) But that's not where it ends. He wants his life in us, through us, for us, 
at work all the time. And that's what this author is trying to get these Hebrew baby Christians to understand. God will meet you in your hard place. He doesn't want you to live in a hard place, but sometimes he knows we find ourselves in a hard place through none of our own doing. Things get hard for no good reason. (laughs) But he is able to turn all things for good. He is able to lead us out of hardness into peace and joy and rest, no matter what our hardness looks like. Our salvation is designed by God to affect all the parts of our life so that by faith we can actually experience and enjoy the healing and the deliverance and the provision and the protection and the wholeness. (laughs) Being saved isn't just about our spiritual transformation inwardly. It's also about God's ability to save us outwardly by our faith in him. And that's what these Hebrew baby believers were having problems with. They just weren't sure (laughs) that Jesus had made them forever righteous, forever acceptable to the Father. So they couldn't truly be convinced in their own hearts and minds that God would provide for them and protect them. The author of Hebrews is trying to persuade his readers to believe in the perfection and the eternalness of Christ as our high priest, whoever lives to connect us to himself his Father, and our new covenant benefits. (laughs) Because Jesus is eternal and his priesthood is eternal and his sacrifice is eternally valid, our connection and relationship with God is also eternal and unbreakable. There will never be another priest or another sacrifice because the Father is perfectly satisfied with Jesus and his sacrifice. So we don't need to bring anything else. All of our other sacrifices are an insult. (laughs) we're saying, well, maybe what Jesus did wasn't enough. Maybe I need to do X, Y, or Z to make God like me. Mm -mm. Jesus is enough. Patty and PJ had their power service recently interrupted. (laughs) They weren't receiving the power that that was owed to them. (laughs) That will never happen with God. There will never be an interruption or a time when Jesus will accidentally look away and you'll fall in a hole and he won't notice. (laughs) Not going to happen. (laughs) There will never be an interruption in Jesus making intercession, this connection for us. Jesus continually connects us to our Father and his kingdom. In other words, there will never be a power outage in our connection to Jesus and the Father. Not even if we sin. Sin does not have the power to interrupt or discontinue our connection to Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Now, this is really good news because so much of the church is teaching people, you've got to be so careful. Holy Spirit is very sensitive. He's like a little dove on your shoulder, and if you move too quickly, you'll scare him away. Did you ever hear that one? How about, don't you chew gum in church? You'll offend Holy Spirit, and he'll leave. Don't you get up and go to the bathroom right now, because you'll offend Holy Spirit, and he'll leave. Yes, that is still being taught today, that the Holy Spirit is so sensitive that we can make him leave. Not true. Forever connected. He ever liveth 
to connect us to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He ever liveth to keep us connected. We don't have to worry about offending the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is not offendable. Now, he can be grieved, which simply means to make sad. Yes, we can make him sad. How do we do that? By ignoring him. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> he doesn't leave if we ignore him. In fact, he will be very quiet if we ignore him. That's the worst you can do. Because Jesus ever liveth to connect us to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, when it comes to sin, sin doesn't make the Holy Spirit leave, doesn't make God turn away, doesn't make Jesus cover his eyes, it doesn't do any of those things. <laughs> but sin is not a good idea. It never is. Because sin only bears ugly fruit in our lives. And nobody likes ugly fruit. <laughs> nobody. <laughs> but the truth of the new covenant is that sin is not more powerful than the blood of Jesus or the eternal life that dwells in us. Therefore, we should be able to confidently ask the Father for whatever we need and confidently receive it by faith because Jesus ever liveth to make intercession for us. He ever liveth to connect us to the Father and the fullness of our salvation, which provides us with everything we need for life and godliness by faith in God's promises. But the Hebrew baby believers struggled with actually believing that they were secure enough in their relationship with God through Jesus alone because they were so accustomed to having to bring many sacrifices over and over again because, well, sin happened. <laughs> and under the old covenant, when sin happened, they were disqualified from living in God's blessing. Therefore, they couldn't confidently expect God to protect them and provide for them under the old system, unless they brought another sacrifice. <laughs> so this old way of thinking kept creeping in. If I sin today, I'll bring a lamb. <laughs> Because I want to make sure that I'm covered. They hadn't yet embraced the truth of just how good, how complete Jesus saves. <laughs> so this is why the Hebrew baby believers were still sneaking off to the temple because they were still concerned that they, God wasn't seeing them as righteous. And a whole bunch of the church is the same way. They think, well, I've snapped at my spouse or, <laughs> or whatever it is. I made a mistake. I failed. Now God's mad. No, there's no mad God. God is satisfied with Jesus. God is not mad at anyone. He loves them with the everlasting love. He wants them to trust him because that's the only way he can get good things to us. <laughs> is by us trusting him. So the author continues to try to convince his readers of the supremacy of Jesus as our forever high priest and as our forever intercessor and mediator of our forever connection and relationship with God. And in his efforts to persuade his reader, the author in verse 22 of chapter 7 calls Jesus the guarantee or the surety of the new covenant. 
I have it for you in both the King James and the Weymouth. Verse 22, King James. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. In the Weymouth it says, so much the more also is the covenant of which Jesus has become the guarantor, a better covenant. The words surety and guarantor aren't words believers generally use in everyday language. (laughs) But they are generally used when discussing someone's ability to pay a debt to a creditor. If I wanted to borrow a large amount of money, but I didn't have the assets needed to assure the lender (laughs) that there was something I could sell if I needed to in order to pay back the loan, I could ask someone else to be my guarantor, my guarantor or co-signer. A co-signer or a guarantor, even though there's a little bit difference in them, they kind of do the same thing. A co-signer or a guarantor agrees to take responsibility for my debt in the event that I can't pay. That's why they get co-signers, because they say, if you come into a hard time and you can't pay us, it's not okay not to pay us. (laughs) somebody's better be paying. So since we're not sure you can do it on your own, is there somebody who will guarantee that this payment will always be made? The author of Hebrews says, this is what Jesus did for us. Part of the requirements of a guarantor or a co-signer is he has to actually be able to pay the debt, even if I can't. In other words, I can't get my brother-in-law to be my co-signer if he doesn't have anything. (laughs) If I have nothing and he has nothing, the lender's going to say, nope, nobody here qualifies for a loan. (laughs) You've got to have somebody who has the ability to actually take care of your debt. And not only that, he has to have not only the appropriate and adequate resources needed to pay my debt, but he also has to be approved by my creditor. So you you just can't get anybody you want to co-sign a a loan and have a a lender give you as much money as you want. It doesn't work that way. But this is a picture or type and shadow of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus guarantees both the Father and us that all of our sin debt has, in fact, already been paid for at the cross. And in the event of a new debt, in other words, a new sin, (laughs) Jesus, as our guarantor, is the one responsible to make sure that the debt is paid but to the creditor, which is our Father, who has already received Jesus' full payment. And our Father, as our creditor, has prophetically and publicly proclaimed his approval of Jesus as our guarantor by swearing an oath that his position as our high priest and our guarantor is forever. The father swore an oath proclaiming that his son would forever be our high priest and our guarantor of a better covenant. And what the father swears an oath to is irrevocable. So Jesus as our guarantor has already paid mankind's, all of mankind's entire sin debt in full so that whoever comes to God the father through Jesus can be completely confident (laughs) that he is able to also sozoed us completely, perfectly, and continuously. He is able to save, heal, deliver, provide, protect, and make whole all of us who come to God the Father through him perfectly, completely, and forever. 
Jesus, as our high priest, is perfect in his person and perfect in his preparation. The Father has perfectly prepared Jesus in his humanity to be our personal representative to the Father. And in his divinity, he perfectly represents the Father to us. Jesus is the Father's expression of himself. How do we know that the God of the Old Testament isn't who God has always been? Because we have Jesus. Under the Old Covenant, they were people who were blind, living in darkness, and couldn't see the truth right in front of them. <laughs> it is only in the New Covenant that we come into the light, we come into the truth, we come in and see the fullness of who God really is and who he's always really been. So Jesus is a far better high priest than the priests of the Old Covenant, particularly because Jesus is a far better human being than the priests of the Old Covenant. And we can see this in chapter 7, beginning in verse 26, again in the Passion Translation. He, Jesus, is the high priest who perfectly fits our need. He's holy, without a trace of evil, without the ability to deceive, incapable of sin, and exalted beyond the heavens. Unlike the former high priests, he is not compelled to offer daily sacrifices. They had to bring a sacrifice first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. I love this. But he finished the sacrificial system once and for all when he offered himself. The Hebrew baby believers really needed a revelation of this reality, which is why the author is telling it to them. They need to see this picture, this truth. Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice isn't just enough. <laughs> it's actually so much that it put the old system out of business. <laughs> it put an end to the old system. It put an end to the need for a daily forgiveness. What? <laughs> Even though they had the Day of Atonement, they still had all these sacrifices morning, noon, and night to make sure that whatever it is they did that was stupid was not being held against them. <laughs> and much of the body of Christ also needs the same revelation, which is why they too struggle to be able to trust that God will sozo them in the midst of their difficult situations because they're not sure that they have really been forever forgiven. They continue to seek for forgiveness that they already have. It's kind of like me. I'm nearsighted, but I used to be less nearsighted than I am now. I would often just take my glasses off and put them on top of my head so I wouldn't lose them. <laughs> and I would do stuff around my house, and then all of a sudden I would think, oh, I need my glasses. <laughs> Why did I put those? <laughs> and I would be hunting around my house to find my glasses, which are on my head. <laughs> That's what Christians do. They keep asking and looking for something they already possess. And that's actually what we call unbelief. <laughs> They actually already possess a forgiven state of being, but they don't believe it. So they struggle to believe that God will be good to them and answer their prayers and meet their needs. They don't know they already have what they're asking God for. 
This is exactly why so many believers think that Jesus ever liveth to pray to the Father on their behalf. Because they don't actually believe that the work of salvation is finished. So they think Jesus has to continually beg and plead with the Father for our forgiveness again. (laughs) For our healing again. For our provision again. When in actuality, everything has been provided through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Yes, it's ours, but we appropriate it by faith, by believing that it really is ours, and acting on whatever instructions our Father gives us. He's always trying to get his good stuff to us. He's not fighting with us. (laughs) Imagine for a minute that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he turns to the Father, and he says, Father... Please forgive your people their sins. Look at them, Father. They're all sinners. Please forgive them. (laughs) What would the Father have to say to that? It would have to be something like, "Mm, excuse me, son. Didn't you take all of their sins to the cross? Jesus would have to say, well, yes, Father, I, I, I did take all of their sins to the cross. And then the Father would have to reply with something like, then what sins are left? (laughs) Jesus would have to reply with, "Mm, I guess there aren't any. Never mind. (laughs) Which is the point that the writer's trying to make. If you sin today, it's already been paid for. You live in a different and better covenant. You live in a different and better kingdom. You live in a different and better relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There aren't any sins left over for God to forgive. It's all already been done. Now, I understand that it has been pounded into most of us that we need to get daily forgiveness for our daily stupid stuff. But if today's sins were not included in the cross of Christ, then where do we get another Christ and another cross? Nowhere. It doesn't exist. So if my sin is not covered and paid for it at the cross, then it's not covered and paid for it anywhere. This is kind of the point the author is making in chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, again in the Passion. Under the old system, year after year, the high priest entered the most holy sanctuary with blood that was not his own. But the Messiah did not need to repeatedly offer himself year after year or day after day. (laughs) For that would mean he must suffer repeatedly ever since the fall of the world. But now he has appeared at the fulfillment of the ages to abolish sin once and for all by the sacrifice of himself. According to the Strong's Concordance, the word translated as abolish in this version means to cancel, disannul, put away. It also can include the idea of to set aside, disesteem, neutralize, violate, cast off, despise, annul, frustrate, bring to naught, and reject. (sighs) Out of all of those words, I really like the word neutralize. Because that's what happens to sin in the life of the believer. Its power is neutralized. It doesn't mean we don't ever fall short of God's glorious perfection. And nobody who loves Jesus is trying to. (laughs) But it no longer has the power or authority to separate us from God or his favor or his blessing. 
it can still wreak havoc in our lives, but it doesn't change our right standing with Jesus and the Father. In fact, nothing will ever be able to separate us from our Jesus and our Father, because Jesus ever liveth to keep us connected to himself and the Father. He is the place of intercession where man and God meet. So in Christ, we are forever righteous and forever forgiven. And because this is true, we can confidently ask the Father for whatever we need, and we can expect for him to provide whatever we need because he is for us. God is not mad. God is not distant. God is our Father. Romans 8, 31 and 32 says this, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? I think God's bigger than everybody else, right? <laughs> if God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things. This inspires confidence. This inspires faith, trust. Our God is good. He likes us. <laughs> he wants to be with us always. He wants to provide for everything we have need of. This is what the Hebrew baby believers needed to believe. They needed to believe that Jesus was and is enough because our Father is the one who has said so. Our Father is the one who has appointed his perfect Son to be our high priest, and he swore to it with an oath, making Jesus' position as our intercessor irrevocable. <laughs> he will never cease to be the place of intercession. Never! This is why Jesus is a much better high priest than any of those who worked under the Old Covenant law. The Old Covenant priests were flawed, sinful human beings operating within a system that was only a type and shadow of the real. What they were continuing to do in the temple was actually completely worthless. Just as is our begging for forgiveness is worthless. <laughs> it's us trying to obtain what we already have. In Christ, the perfect son, the father has made a way for sinful human beings to become spiritually perfect and completely righteous and entirely eligible to receive whatever we need from our father's goodness and grace, all by faith. And we can see this truth in the last verse of this chapter, Hebrews 7.28, and I have it for you in the Williams translation. For the law appoints imperfect men as high priests. But the assertion about the taking of an oath, which was spoken after the time of the law, in other words, the law was first, and then in the Psalms is where the Father says that Jesus is appointed a high priest. After the time of the law, he appoints a son who is perfectly qualified to be high priest forever. And in so doing, he ever liveth to make intercession for us. He ever liveth to give us his life and his relationship and everything that Jesus has is imparted to us, all because Jesus ever liveth to be and make intercession for us. Lots of times people will ask Mark and I, can't you guys talk about something other than grace? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and our response is no. You see, you're not going to get your faith to work if you have doubts that God is good, or if you have doubts that God is, finds you acceptable, that it thwarts your faith. That's why the Hebrews were struggling so much to rest in the midst of a difficult situation. They couldn't actually believe God loved them and had provided so completely for them that they could rest and let God take care of everything. God loves to show us that he's always involved. He's always orchestrating. He's always at work on our behalf. My daughter, Sarah, goes to a, a um, prayer meeting on Tuesday mornings at her children's school. She had made an appointment to, to take her dogs to be groomed. So she made the appointment, and then she's planning her week, and she goes, oh, no, I made the appointment on Tuesday when I'm supposed to have a prayer meeting. And God says, don't worry about it. She's like, you sure about that? <laughs> he said, don't worry about it. Just leave it the way it is. So she did. Well, come to find out, the people who were there had COVID. <laughs> and God said, see, I'm always orchestrating. I'm always providing. I'm always helping you get out of difficult situations. I'm always trying to bless you. Sarah struggles with seasonal affective disorder. So come around January or so, She's really missing the sunshine. And uh, they had a, a big expense happen. Their water connection to their house broke. And the insurance doesn't cover it for their house insurance because it's not part of the house. Even though it belongs to the city, the city says, no, it's on your property. <laughs> you get to pay this gigantic bill. She's like, oh, great, that means no going to Florida. No going to visit the sunshine this year. <laughs> but God. Well, my youngest son, his father-in-law has a property down in Florida, and he lets his children and grandchildren go and visit and have vacation there. Well, my son wasn't going to go, so he talked to his father-in-law, and his father-in-law says, here, send your sister then. <laughs> Somebody needs to use this property. <laughs> they tried to give him money. They tried <laughs> to say, no, no, that's too generous. They tried every which way they could to gracefully back out. And basically, Joe's father-in-law said, no, you will go. You will have fun, and it will be for free. <laughs> so guess what? They went to Florida, got to visit the sunshine, <laughs> got to feel like themselves again for free. Why? Because God loves them. <laughs> Father God loves to bless us and take care of us and do things for us that we could never do ourselves. In the process, we have to believe that that's who he is. We have to change the picture that God is mean and stingy and giving us just as little as he possibly can. No, he's big, he's extravagant, he's amazing. He just wants us to actually believe it so that we can receive it. Because if we think God is big and mean and stingy, then that's exactly what we're going to have show up in our life. Little crumbs. Instead of unexpected joys. That Jesus ever liveth to connect us to all of the goodness of our Father. And nothing and no one can change that. That's why it's so important for us to preach grace, that it's all for free, because that's the only way we're ever going to really believe that God would be so good to us if it's for free. Because no one can live up to the target. No one can hit it. 
So it has to be done for us. We have to be included in it for free. It's the only way our faith will work. We have to believe that we don't have to do anything to earn it at all. That it's a free gift. You see, that's when your faith starts taking effect. It starts working when you're not even trying to make it work. God sent you to Florida and you didn't even ask for it. He meets your need. He gives you your desires because he's good. Just because you trust him. Just because you realize he's that good. And you appreciate all that he does. Amen? So, Father God, we thank you that Jesus ever liveth to connect us to you and the kingdom and the grace and the goodness and the faith. Even the faith is a gift. We thank you, Father God, that you enable us to participate in the kingdom that we're often so unaware of. You are always at work on our behalf. You ever liveth to bring us into a place of being sozoed saved, healed, delivered, protected, provided for, and made whole. You are always at work sozoing us, even when we don't realize it. Help us, Father, to believe you're bigger than what hurts. You're bigger than what's hard. You're bigger than any difficulty or situation that we may find ourselves in. Help us to be like Jesus in the boat. Doesn't matter what's happening on the outside, we can rest and trust in the goodness of our Father because Jesus ever liveth to keep us safe, to keep us sozoed. And we thank you for it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 833-632-1315, or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, triumphant grace to you. God bless you.